story. He has told us about how the angel Gabriel came to Zachariah. He said, Zachariah, your wife, you and your wife are going to have a child. I know your wife's an old woman. I know that all her life she is barren and had no children. But you're going to have a son and you're going to call his name John. But this isn't the only child that Gabriel has told of. He's also come, as we saw last week, to a girl named Mary. This young, unwed virgin. She, he said, Mary, you too are going to conceive and bear a son. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You are going to have a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. And he is going to reign over an everlasting kingdom. And this morning, as we pick up our text, we are going to find both Mary and Elizabeth carrying the sons that Gabriel had told them of. And it's interesting, isn't it, to think about how both arrived at the stations where they are. Because Elizabeth, for years, has tried to have children, but to no avail. And now that she is old, she's carrying a son. And Mary, who has never tried to have children, now finds herself not carrying just a child, but the long-awaited for Messiah. And in our text today, we are going to see a reunion of these cousins of Mary and Elizabeth. And we're going to spend our time looking at what we call Mary's Magnificat, or her hymn of praise. And as we look at this hymn, we're going to think about what did it mean for her, but also what does it mean for us? And we'll use the categories of personal mercies, historical, historical mercies, and covenantal mercies as we look at this song. So let's turn to our text now. And would you stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 39, it says this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary... The baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he's looked on my humblest, the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Isaiah tells us that the grass will wither and the flowers will fade away, but the word of our God will stand forever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. So, do any, any of y'all like to sing, but know like, that you're just not very good at it? Or do any of y'all have, maybe have a friend or a spouse who likes to sing, and even though they may not know it, you know they're not very good at it? 
So ever since I was a kid, like I've really enjoyed singing, but I, I'm fully aware I'm in the camp of not very good. But whenever I was growing up, the songs that I knew, they were mostly church songs and a few country tunes mixed in there. Thanks, Dad. Um, but I want you to think about what, if you're an adult, think about what were those songs for you? If you're a kid, what songs do you know now? Adults, what songs do you know so well that they are like imprinted on you that even if you haven't heard them in years, you could sing every word today? If you're like me and grew up in the church, maybe those songs for you are old hymns. Maybe they're songs like Amazing Grace or To God Be the Glory, or maybe it's the doxology. Or maybe if you grew up at a certain time and in a certain flavor of church, it's songs like uh, Shout to the Lord in the Heart of Worship. You know, for me, like as I've gotten a little bit older, um, these songs have come to be for me, like not just words that I know, they're not just tunes that are familiar to me, but they've actually, they've become resources, they become tools that actually lead me now into deeper reflection of who our God is, the work he has done on behalf of his people, and even like what is my place as I stand before him. They become words that I use to worship. Sometimes that worship is when I'm by myself. And sometimes it's in the corporate gathering with y'all. You know, what we find here in chapter one, in these verses, it's a song. It's a song that Mary sings. It's a song where she recounts the mercies of God, not only as it relates to her, but even the saints of old and us, the saints of the future. This song is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. But before we actually get there and look at what it says, we should look at least briefly and ask, like, what leads her? What leads her to sing this song? And, like, what's the setting that she's in as she sings it? We see that she has gone to see her cousin Elizabeth. And as Mary enters her house, Elizabeth gives her a greeting. She breaks into praise and even prophesying, John Calvin would say, because the, the baby that Mary is carrying is the long-awaited for Messiah. And this reception that Elizabeth gives and the news that she gives. Because she says, whenever, whenever the baby heard the sound of your voice, Mary, it leaped in my womb. This reception and this news, it actually sends Mary, it launches her into this song that we find beginning in verse 46. This song we call Mary's Magnificat, and it's titled that for a reason. And it's not Magnificant, as I often called it, so if I do that, forgive me, I am, I am wrong. It's Mary's Magnificat. And the reason it's called this is because of the way it begins. It's actually drawing on this word that we find in the opening line. This word magnifies. And her song, it actually, even though it's lost on us most of the time, it actually follows a form. It follows the form of the Psalms of Thanksgiving. And we find those in places like Psalm 34 and Psalm 100, Psalm 111, and even Psalm 95 that we use to call us into worship today. Her song, it not only follows this form, it also uses some of the language of the Psalms. But not just the Psalms. Because Mary actually is recounting things from the historical books and even the prophets. The reason I titled this sermon Biblical Interpolation is because 
because she is borrowing. In music, if you like take pieces of another, someone else's work and kind of weave it into your own, it's called musical interpolation. And here, Mary is taking the words of the saints of old. She is weaving it into this prayer, to this song of praise. She's borrowing from Habakkuk 3 and Deuteronomy 10 and Isaiah 41 and Micah 7. Her praise is rich with the scriptures of which she is so obviously familiar. And in the first four verses, she tells of the personal mercies that she has experienced. She opens by saying her soul magnifies the Lord, that her spirit rejoices. But, but why? Why is her soul, why is the seat of her affections magnifying, glorifying, extolling, rejoicing in the Lord? Well, she tells us, she says, because God is her Savior. She gives voice to the fact that God has seen her in her humble estate. But what do you think she means by that? What do you think Mary means by her humble estate? Is she using that term in like a human, material, social kind of way? Is she referring to the fact that she's this young, unmarried woman who likely comes from a family without means, who, and that she herself like has no social status to speak of? Is that what she means? Maybe. Maybe in part. But it's not the primary way she's using this term. Because at a much deeper level, what Mary is referring to here is her place before God as she considers her sin and her Savior's holiness. You know, in one of those hymns that I grew up singing, Isaac Watts, he, he looks for a way to communicate this lowly, humble estate that Mary is here expressing. And the way that he ends up describing it is he calls himself a worm. I want you to think, when you pray, what terms do you use to express that? Look, y'all, I, I don't think I've ever referred to my humble estate. I know for a fact I have not called myself a worm, all right? But in my prayers, like, I have sought to find language to express this. What words do you use? Or do you at all? Do you ever think about your humble estate before God? Do you bring that before Him in your prayers? You know, most of us in the church will readily give lip service to the fact that we're sinners before God. But friend, how deep does that belief really penetrate your heart? How often do you actually consider the depths of your sinfulness, your brokenness, your depravity? I know for me, the tendency is often to look at my actions and the words that I say and even the thoughts that are in my mind that I would never let y'all hear. But, you know, I'll look at my actions and I'll consider my words and even my thoughts and I'll think, yeah, yeah, you are broken, you are depraved, you are sinful. But man, if I'm honest, like my reflection, it often ends there. I acknowledge the way that God has saved me from these outward actions, these outward sins. But I don't consider the way that they are actually just pointing to the much deeper brokenness in the recesses of my heart. Friend, what about you? 
How often do you honestly contemplate your place before the holy God? Are you like me? Like, you're okay to acknowledge the fact that you're sinful, but you really stiff arm even the idea of contemplating how deep that brokenness goes. How deep your sin actually is rooted in your heart. Friends, it's only as we come to grips with the depths of our sin. It's only as we begin to see the degree of brokenness from which we have been redeemed. Only then can we magnify and rejoice our Savior as we ought to. But y'all, it's not just our sinfulness that we should be considering. I think for some in the church, this, is actually, this has actually been a place um, where they have erred. Because they always only look at themselves. And should we acknowledge our sinfulness? Absolutely. But we should be contemplating the holiness of our God. When we consider the attributes of God, a lot of us tend to think first of things like His love and His mercy and His grace and His patience. And I think we often focus on these because, let's be real, these are the attributes that we like, right? It makes God seem like maybe softer or easier to accept or maybe more approachable. But man, what about his holiness? I mean, often we'll talk about our holy God or the holiness of God, but man, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to you? Do, do you ever consider what that actually means? Do you ever consider that God is pure and over and set apart from all that he has made? Not set apart in a way that, like, he doesn't care or is indifferent. No, like, he is, he is concerned with every detail of all creation. But in his purity and his holiness, he is set apart and over and different than us. Y'all, if we meditate on the holiness of God, you know what it should evoke or stir in us? It should evoke feelings of fear and reverence and awe. Think about the way the Bible talks about the holiness of God. Think about what Revelation 4 says. In verse 8, we read, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say. Church, what do they say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. I want you all to picture this scene. Imagine what this must look like. Imagine if those creatures were in here today. If we saw them, you know what they'd stir in us? Do you know what feelings they'd evoke in us? Oh, it would be fear. Let's not play. It would be fear and awe and reverence. We actually might be tempted to worship them. But these creatures, in all their majesty, the Bible tells us, you know what they do? For all eternity, they sing one refrain, and it is of the holiness of our God. This should give us an idea. <laughs> like how unbelievable it must be. Or think about what it says in Isaiah 57. <clears throat> The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Y'all, holiness isn't like just a thing that comes as part of the God package. It's so intrinsic to who he is that Isaiah and even Mary here in her song can say, that's his name. 
He is perfect and majestic and glorious. And friends, He is holy. And in places like Leviticus 19 and 20 and 21 and Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 1, that's what He calls you to be. Our God calls you to be holy. Not just us as a group, but you as an individual, Christian. And the more that you learn of Him, the more you see His holiness, the more you start to comprehend like what exactly that means, you start to realize like you can't do it. You can't be holy. You're not even close. You're not holy-ish. You're not halfway there, Bon Jovi. You are dead and without hope. You can't do it. And friend, the good news is this is why Christ came. Christ came so that you might actually be holy. Not in your own strength, but by virtue of His holiness being credited to you. Do you consider the holiness of God? Or do you just kind of add it to your mental checklist of God's attributes? Christian, who is God and what has He done for you? We see that to Mary, God was her Savior and Lord. He is the one who had done mighty acts in her life. He was the holy God who alone was deserving of her praise and honor. And you know, as Mary offered up her praise based on the things she references, it seems as though she was actually thinking of others whose humble estate God had looked on. And I wonder who those others might be. Could it be David, whose psalms she here references? David, who whenever the prophet Samuel came and said, gather your sons, he gathered them. Well, except for David. Somebody's got to watch the sheep. That's humble estate. I wonder if she thought of David. I wonder if she thought of Hannah. Hannah, who in 1 Samuel 2, prays a prayer that's very similar to Mary's. Hannah, who, like Mary's cousin Elizabeth, was barren and without children, though she loved her God and she loved her husband and desired to have children. I wonder if she thought of her. I wonder if she thought of, well, maybe people like Leah, who, though she bore Jacob's six sons, never did garner his love in the way she had hoped. I wonder who Mary thought of. As Mary praised her God who had seen her humble estate as she, as she considered the countless other saints who God had looked on their humble estate. It led her to praise her God. To praise her God who uses those who are of humble estate. Man, Christian, is that how you see yourself? Perhaps in her contemplation of these old saints, it's what led her to turn her attention from her personal mercies that she had experienced to the historical mercies that God has shown his people. So whenever I was in mid-school and high school, there was a class that I really enjoyed going to but didn't enjoy testing for, uh, and that class was history. Like, I really enjoyed going and hearing about like, the people and the events that had shaped our world and the history and all the things, right? Like I loved it. But man, I hated the test because like numbers and names and stuff like just did not sink in. But I remember my freshman year of high school, I had to take Oklahoma history. So I'm an Oklahoma kid. 
And part of that is that you learn about the Native American tribes. Um, and I really I enjoyed this because it was fascinating to me about like hearing things that were specific to each one. So like in the Cherokee tribe, Sequoia invented a writing system and an alphabet for their language. It's like, that's really cool. Think of all the doors that would open. I liked hearing about how they played a game of stickball that's kind of like lacrosse. We probably stole it from them, but you know, if we stole everything else, it's cool. Or like how um, they even ended up in Oklahoma and the effect that it had on the overall culture of their people. You know, as we look at history, we find that even though names and faces and locations and cultures change, people sure do follow similar patterns. Y'all, we are broken in the same way. We sin in the same way. People are people no matter where you go. And that's not always or even often a good thing. But as we study history, specifically the history of God's interaction with his people, we find that God too is consistent. But man, he's consistent in a way that we desire for our God to be. God follows a pattern of behavior, but the one he follows is one of steadfast perfection. And as we move into these next four verses, 50 to 53, we see Mary recounting the mercies that God has shown throughout the generations. And it's important as we move into this section of her song to notice who exactly it is in view here. Yes, she is praising God for what he has done, for the way he has acted. But whenever she speaks of his mercy, she says it's for a specific group of people. It's not for those who are specifically born to the nation of Israel. Who is it for? Who does she say? And it's for those that fear him. That's who God's mercy is and always has been reserved for. It's God's people, regardless of what your 23andMe results are. And Mary says, this is what God has done throughout the generations on behalf of those that fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I want you to try to imagine something with me. I want you to try to imagine being in the shoes of a first century, is this first century? Sure, history, I'm telling you, not good. I want you to imagine, to try, imagine being in the shoes of a Jewish person at this time. I wonder how many of them had the same outlook that Mary did. How many people do you think were singing the mercies of God? The reason I ask is this. It's because... Mary's not the only one who knew the history of her people. I wonder how easy it would be for some of them to see all of the hard and terrible things that had happened and really fail to see the way that God had been merciful to them. Think about this generation, y'all. This is the generation who would have known of the exile. They would have known of the ruin that had come to Israel. They would have known that the temple they now had paled in comparison in its beauty to what had once been there. They would have been living in a time where all they would have known was increasing Roman dominance. They would have known that there had been no new special revelation for 400 years. And I wonder how many of them would have failed to 
remember the countless times that God had exercised his strength on their behalf. How many would have failed to remember the way that God countless times had <laughs> he had brought down the proud that he had taken down kingdoms that the world thought too mighty to ever crumble. How many of these people would have failed to see and remember that God throughout the ages had provided for those who fear him? We may try to put ourselves in their shoes and think, yeah, yeah, I wonder how often that was true of that generation. But Christian, how often is that true of us? How often is that our hearts? I mean... Do you ever feel like it's hard for you to see the good? Like everywhere you turn, you can pick off another thing that didn't go your way, another thing that is bad, another way that the world is crumbling, and yet fail to see the faithfulness of our God. If you're honest, do you say, yeah, it's actually worse than that? As I look at my life, I don't even think there's any good to see. I bet there's some in this room today that feel that way. And you know, I think it could have been easy for Mary to feel that way too. I mean, think about her situation. She is a pregnant, unmarried teenager who lives in a society where open shaming would have been like the least of her problems. I think it's fair to say she could have seen only the negative. That she could have let her situation fill her with anxiety. That she could have turned to God and be like, you have to give me answers. You have to give me assurances that everything is going to be okay. Friends, it's not what she did. Instead, she looked back at the history of her people. And more importantly, she looked back and saw the unfailing mercy that God has always showed towards those that fear Him. Church, how often do we fail to be like Mary? And instead of recounting God's mercies, instead of recounting His faithfulness to us, even in hard seasons, we focus on all the things that were difficult, all the ways we feel like maybe God had even abandoned or forgotten us. You know, even in those times, it's important for us to look back and remember that even in those hard seasons, God has shown us mercy. He has been faithful to us, even if it didn't look the way that we had hoped. Our God extends his mercy to us just as he has to his people throughout history. His character and his actions remain the same. He continues to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. He continues to fill those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He continues to humble those who set themselves on thrones and call for the worship of others. He is the everlasting, immutable, unchanging God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And Christian, this should be a comfort to us. This should comfort us because it means just as he has done from the very beginning of time, he continues to show mercy to those that fear him. But the question that we should all be asking ourselves is this. Man, is that me? Christian or non-Christian, whoever you are here, this is the question you should ask yourself. Do you fear the Lord? Do you, do you humble yourself before him? Are you hungering and searching after Him? Are you placing yourself in subjection under His rule? Christian, are you reflecting on and taking comfort in the covenant mercies that God has shown to His people throughout history and that He has shown to you in your walk with Him? 
Mary's song rejoices in the personal and historic mercies of God. And her song closes with his covenantal mercies. So years ago, I had a couple friends who, um, they made a deal on a car. Guy had one that he needed to get rid of, is becoming a yard ornament. And so he, um, him and another friend struck a deal. But the guy who was buying it's like, look, I got most of the money, but I'm a little short. But if you'll take this payment now, I'll, I'll pay you out the rest. Like, we're friends. I see you all the time. It's great. We'll do that. So there's a verbal agreement and a handshake, and the title to it is signed over. But the deal didn't go down as everyone had hoped. Because the deed is signed over. Possession is taken. Most of the money is paid. But that bit that he had promised to pay, um, it, it never actually came through. And he quit coming around. He quit answering calls and texts. And the guy who had sold the car was stuck. Right? Like, what was he to do? There was no legal recourse. He hadn't signed a contract. So there was frustration and a loss of friendship and anger. And all he had left was an empty promise. You know, throughout history, God, too, has made promises to his people. But unlike the promise that my friend made, and unlike the promise that many of us make, God's promises aren't empty. Our God is faithful to his word, and he has proved it, not just by signing a contract, but by cutting a covenant. And that covenant God has cut is the covenant of grace. And that covenant has always been marked by mercy. As Mary says in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. You know, at the fall, whenever this covenant was introduced, it was marked by mercy. Because it was merciful of God to clothe Adam and Eve. It was merciful of him to not let their death and eternal destruction be immediate. It was merciful of him to leave them with one another so that they might have the companionship for which they were created. With Abraham, it was merciful for God to cause a deep sleep to fall on him. It was merciful for God to pass through the pieces and take the full weight of both covenant parties on himself. With Israel at Sinai, it was merciful for God to give them the law so that they might see God's holiness and their sinfulness so that evil might be restrained and so that they might walk in the ways that God had prepared for them. With David, it was merciful for God to establish a line through whom the Messiah would come. And it was merciful of him to sustain that line through all the attempts of the enemy to crush it. Friends, it's the unwavering mercy of God that Mary ends her song with. She remembers the faithfulness of God and praises him for the fulfillment of the promises he had made thousands of years before. Church, it's this same God and these same mercies that are now extended to us. Us, the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And all of these shadows and promises in the Old Testament, they all find their yes in Jesus. So why could Mary rejoice because her God was faithful and kept the promises and showed mercy to his people. Friends, as you consider the incarnation this season, I would ask you, are you moved as Mary was by the mercy of our God? 
Does it lead you to actually recount his faithfulness, not just to you, but to the church and his people throughout history? Does it cause you to move towards him in unbridled praise? Friends, this season, let's not get weighed down by the weight of expectation that we create for ourselves and that we let others heap on us. Let us not become overwhelmed by the seemingly endless list of things we feel we have to do before the season is over. Instead, let us stop and be intentional about basking in the glory of our God. Let us be moved by his mercy that he has shown towards us. And let us celebrate the freedom that is ours in Jesus. Friends, let's be intentional about stopping to recount the mercies of our God that he has shown to us. Let's remember the faithfulness that has been demonstrated throughout the generations. And let that lead us to follow the example and magnify and rejoice in God our Savior. Let's pray together. God, indeed, we thank you for the mercies that you have shown to us as your people and to the mercies you have shown to us as individuals. May we pray that we would not be short-sighted. That we would remember not only how you have been faithful to your saints throughout the ages, but man, just how you have been faithful to us even in the small ways throughout, throughout our life. Pray that you indeed would tune our hearts to sing your praise. That you would let us see our humble estate. Man, not just that, but that you would let us see your holiness. That you would lead us to deeper contemplation of what that means. God, let us see your beauty. And in this season, let us consider the incarnation as we haven't before. And as we do and think about the way that you have loved us, men, let it not only lead us to praise you more, but to love and to minister to those around us. We pray that you would do these things, yes, for our good, but more importantly, for your glory. And we bring all these things before the throne in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was